Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Clint Flowers here with my co-host Joe Baya, and this week's show is brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As a local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources, and while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. Well, Clint, how's it going for you this week, man? I, I'm pretty excited about this week's show. We're going to be, I, I got to make a confession. I went to Lowe's the other day uh, at my behest and had to purchase five rolls of pine straw at I believe it was $11 a roll, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I really, it really, it hurt me to my core as much pine straw <laughs> as I walked past on a weekly basis. I still went to the store and bought it. Have you, have you ever had to check your ego and buy some pine straw? Oh, yeah. Pine straw, pine bark, <laughs> cypress chips, all of it. Doesn't make sense, does it? No. But hey, you know, that, that the, the thing about pine straw is that I've put out a lot of different kinds of mulch around my house. Pine straw is, just, I know why it's popular. It's popular because it's so easy to put out. I mean, my wife and I mulched our entire property in probably an hour, I'd say. And when we were using bark mulch, it was a better part of a weekend to get that done. You know, hauling around 50 pound sacks of mulch as opposed to hauling around a, a bale that may weigh 25 pounds just covers a lot more ground. And I mean, it looks great too. It, it immediately lays down and I can see why it's a popular product in the South. And, and that's what we're going to be talking about this week. I, I'm, I'm excited to learn how much income landowners can really kind of expect to get off harvesting pine straw on their property, but I also want to learn how that affects the overall ecology of the stand and, and you know, the wildlife that use that part of your property and, and just kind of See, see around some corners. So we're going to be looking into that a little bit later with Becky Barlow, who's the, who is a professor at the Auburn School of Forestry and Wildlife and Natural Resources. But before we get there, I'm excited about this next segment, Clint, because I mean, how many times in a week do you get asked how much is my land worth? I'd say it's probably the number one question I get from landowners is they want to know, hey man, what's my land worth? I saw my neighbor sold his property for $10,000 an acre. Does that mean mine's worth that? You get that question quite a bit? Every day. <laughs> We're going to be digging into that uh, a little bit deeper uh, this week with Jason Burbage. And Jason is the president of National Land Realty. But what Jason brings to the table is a ton of data on land values across the country. We, we crunch these numbers all the time, trying to keep tabs on what's going on. And so today, we're talking about the Southeast and what are land values doing in the southeast and what's the trend especially with all these things going on so to join us each week we've got jason burbage who is the president of national land realty jason welcome to hunting land man we're excited to have you joining us for this segment going forward i understand you've uh you got quite a bit of data to crunch to be able to do this each week yeah well, i appreciate you having me on it's it's a uh, it's quite the honor and uh, you're exactly right it's something that it's an important part of of our business is being able to verify what's going on in the markets that we're doing business in. So it's something that, uh, that I take a, a strong look at on a regular basis. Well, Jason, before we get into that data a little bit, which I'm sure that'd be a short conversation, right? You just tell us like yeah. $2,007 per acre in Alabama, right? 
Right, right. Nah, but before we get there, tell us a little bit about how you got in the land business, man. You know, there's a lot of people envious of the folks that get to play around on, on all this property every day. How'd you get into the business? I went to uh, graduate from Clemson back in 1998. So I've been in the business for over 20 years. I went into it right out of college. All I knew whenever I went off to college was I knew I wanted to have a career that didn't put me behind a desk. And I didn't know what that was going to turn into. I grew up just like so many of us, you know, loving the outdoors, hunting, fishing, just being able to, to get outside and experience wildlife and nature. And I, I wanted to have that same experience and make a career out of it. So when I went off to college, I, I went in as a forestry major at Clemson, ended up pivoting to real estate after learning that Clemson had a real estate program. And my grandfather was in real estate. And so I had some, some interest in it there. And uh, then once I got out of school, I was living in Charleston, South Carolina, and started working for a residential company, trying to be a land guy. And uh, of course, there was no national land realty uh, in existence back then. So pounded out of living, putting deals together with you know residential support and commercial support and that sort of thing. And then eventually migrated to uh, National Land Realty, uh, which is where I've been since 2007 and living the dream, really being able to, to, to uh, make a big impact on, on our industry and enjoy the outdoors and ensure that uh, future generations get to experience the same thing that we did growing up as kids and, and now as adults as well. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun business to be in and uh, it's rewarding to get to work with landowners and really be able to help them and, and create value for them. And one of the things that is the hardest part for any landowner uh, when they're getting ready to sell their property or for buyers that are looking to buy is they're trying to determine, is it a good time to sell? Am I going to make money? Am I buying at a good price? And it's not as easy as walking, you know, looking at the house next door that that's sold and saying, well, this one's got this many square feet. And so just multiply by that and we're good to go. Right. So uh, you guys crunch a ton of data and are able to really look at things from a high level across the country and see which land markets are hot. Tell me about that data. I mean, how many different sales are y'all analyzing? The answer to that is tens of thousands. You know, for us, we've been expanding across the country since we started the company back in 2007. Having a good understanding of what's happening in certain markets is is really paramount for us to be able to strategically build our business in the way that it needs to be done. And our mission, the, the mission statement of National Land Realty is that we exist to make things grow. And so we can't, it's really hard to measure that if you don't have good data to compare it to, to be able to measure that growth. And when we say we exist to make things grow, we're specifically talking about uh, acreage portfolios for clients, their bank accounts, uh, whether that's on the front end when they're buying a property and being able to buy the property at, at the right price or when they're selling the property and us being able to get the most that we possibly can for them. So it all starts with having a, a, an understanding of what you're dealing with. And um, that goes back to the data. I mean, that's where the facts are at. It's uh, anybody who's, who's bought or sold anything has probably had that experience where you had a friend go, well, I think your, your real estate's worth this because my neighbor sold his property for this amount. And um, somebody then assumes that their property is worth the same or less or more or whatever it may be. And the proper way to go about analysis is, is ensuring that you've got the right data to be able to do your research with. So it's a massive project. And it's important for us not to 
tracked, of course, just our own data, which because of our size and the fact that we've got a phenomenal team uh, spread out around the country, we've got a good segment to be able to analyze just on what we do on our own. But when you combine that with every other land sale that takes place around the country, then you're at a place of, of, of really having powerful information. So we process thousands of sales around the, from around the country. We've got a team that their job is to take this information, put it in, scrub it, make sure it's, 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 uh, it's accurate, put it into a place where it can be used uh, to benefit our team, of course, uh, our field team members, so they can in return uh, be able to provide the most uh, accurate information and knowledge possible for the clients that they're working with as well. Well, and like you said, scrubbing it's important because you've got, you know, you can you get errors in data entry. You've got outliers where a property may have had extreme number of improvements on it, um, or had a component that you're unable to uh, determine exactly why it sold for so much or why it sold for so little because it was a arm's length transaction between two family members or something like that. And those are not really and truly, that's not good data. So you got to take those things out, really try to look at fair market value. And yeah, so that's, yeah. what, that's what we're going to be looking at as we go forward with this segment. And today, of course, we're, you know, Clinton, Alabama, I'm in Panhandle, Florida, you're in South Carolina. We want to talk about the Southeast. So specifically Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and we're going we're to throw North Carolina in there too, <laughs> kind of borderline. But yeah, well, let's throw those in there. So, so talk to me about parcel sizes. What is the data telling you as far as average parcel sizes, or, or maybe we want to talk, you know, what, what's the range? You know, when I'm looking at this information, again, it's, it's, it's like from a 50,000 foot level. I'm not drilling down into what's going on in specific markets and that sort of thing for what I need this information for. So what I like to look at is what kind of parcel sizes, what are, what are we seeing trending there? Obviously, what kind of values tracks are trending at, are, are trading for, and then what kind of transactional volume we're seeing as well so that uh, we can determine where the trends are, is there more interest, less interest in different regions, et cetera. So it all comes back to the reinforcement of the fact that with rural land, uh, and for this, we're gonna, I'm going to talk more specifically about rural land than, than other types of, of land uh, properties that are out there. Rural land has a historic, very safe uh, investment history. And what I mean by that is you can look at a 20-year history or a 50-year history and There'll be blips on on the on the line from recessions, et cetera. But overall, there's a steady appreciation of value when you look at a long-term trend. And that value, that range, you know, typically breaks down to around three to five percent. There are factors that go into that. Um, but the cool thing is about land when you when you then add in uh, other main means of being able to add value to your property, like farm rents, timberland returns, leases, et cetera, it, uh, it creates a really powerful investment investment option. Um, so, so the reason why, why we look at this is to identify where the trends are. And so in the Southeast, uh, the interesting thing about the Southeast is that number one, we're in a very healthy market. It's, it's been that way since we came out of the recession. We typically saw things turn around, start turning around. And what I like to say, I think people realized that we were at the bottom was 
at the end of 2011, fourth quarter of 2011, that's for us when we really started th- seeing things really pick back up from a transactional standpoint. And since then, it's steadily been, been on a, uh, a very healthy trend up. We were expecting to see potentially some slowdown because we were, we've been on such a run for uh, an abnormally long period of time that, you know, anticipation was in the coming years that, that um, things were going to slow down some. And that's a good thing, actually. It allows your market to kind of reset and ensure that you've got that healthy growth as opposed to just crazy things happening that cause values to skyrocket, but then also cause things to implode as well. So uh, with rural land, you're usually fairly insulated with regards to these factors that can cause extremes to happen. So overall in the Southeast, we're seeing on average, the size uh, properties are, are typically in that 180 to 200 acre range as far as the the average size parcels that are selling right now that's looking at properties 50 acres and more there's a lot more transactions that take place in that 10 to 50 acre range but just for the data that i pulled for for this discussion that's what we were looking at also the transactional numbers are are very healthy uh and price per acre is steady as well we're we're still overall in that 2300 to 25 to three thousand dollars per acre range. And again, I think it's important for people to understand that this is a 50,000 foot view of it. Your property could be worth $3,000 an acre. It could be worth less. It could be worth worth a heck of a lot more. There are so many variables that go into this when you drill down to specific properties that you can't take that broad that broad overlook approach to it. You've really got to have somebody involved that's going to be able to analyze your property and be able to advise you based on the variables that play into your property. And in land, it's different from like if you're comparing houses, because with houses, there's typically so many sales out there and so many comparables that are similar. It's pretty easy unless you're in a very, very unique market uh, where you've got a lot of unique properties. It's pretty easy to go back and Get a good segment to be able to analyze what a what a pro, what a house is worth fairly easily. With land, though, because of there's so many factors that go into it, you can have one track of land that's got an incredible stand of timber on it. You've got another track of land that may have something completely different, and they both are their valuations will be polar opposite. There, there's no cookie cutter or anything for the most part with rural land. Uh, nothing's exactly the same, and so that's why it's important to have uh, an expert there, a land professional who can come in and evaluate your property and then bring in uh, the other factors that can help uh, determine a good opinion of value for you. You know, you said something earlier, and I want to take you back to that. And you were talking about looking at different areas of the country and being able to determine which markets may be hotter than others. And what metric are you looking at to determine that? So it's not one specific thing. It's a, first and foremost, is observing the trend. So when we're looking at data, it's not just that one snapshot for that one month or that one quarter. It's year over year over year. There's this thing that goes on nationally when we get reports, and it can be any kind of thing. The news will come on and say, you know, well, we'll talk about jobs. I mean, that's something that's, that's a big thing that's going on right now. And They'll say, you know, this was the worst worst month in history when it comes to uh, unemployment. But if you're just looking at one month, yes, that's an important component to it. But the story is told over the period of multiple months and multiple years. Uh, 
And so the metric for me is I want to see what's happening year over year. I want to see if there is, of course, that per acre value is increasing. The size of the property tell that, that says, says a lot as well, because for instance, we're expecting because of the current environment that we're in, and, and we're already seeing this, a lot of interest in smaller properties, just because there's more people out there that, have, that, are, that are interested in being able to have a place to get away to or get away from all the crowds of everybody else. So that means that, that smaller properties are going to be more desired. And as a result of that, there will be opportunities that, that come into play that may not have even existed for certain markets. So the metric is value, it's transactions, it's, and then also looking at the size of the, uh, the tracks that are trading. Then the other comparable, that the other thing that you bring into play is what's going on in that region in general. Are there, are there people relocating to these areas? And that's usually something that's, that is a big factor as well. You can look at different states around the country and like Florida, for example, Florida has a lot of what we refer to as transactional deals taking place, uh, transitional deals taking place where it's not so much a rural hunting property. It's, it's not a commercial development deal, but there's something that's going to be happening in that area soon because of growth. And so you see values increasing because of that. The Midwest, it's very different. It's very much tied to agricultural commodities. Uh, that plays a major role in what happens with, with land values out there. Uh, parts of the Midwest, you've got it's where it's all ag. There's nothing else but ag. Then you've got parts of the Midwest where there's recreational that plays into it as well that adds to it. So it's definitely not a cookie cutter type scenario. It's, it's every, every market is unique and it falls back on the importance of having an expert uh, to consult with when you're making decisions when it comes to, to land. And basically what I'm seeing in Alabama is we're looking at $2,300 to $2,500 an acre for a price per acre. The average size transaction for the size of the parcel is in that 250 to 280 range, which is interesting. In, in, in all the states in the Southeast, we're definitely seeing higher, higher size parcels trading comparable to the other states. Florida is an incredibly interesting market, as I alluded to before. You know, in Florida, we're looking at anywhere from 3,800 to 4,000 an acre on average. Average size is 180 to 200 acres. Florida is unique, like I said before, because of the, the amount of growth that that state's been experiencing over, the, over the, the past years. There's a lot of transitional deals taking place where you've got properties that are going from you know, ag, as in orchards and that sort of thing, to, to development, recreational tracks. There's a lot of solar development going on in Florida. Really, really interesting things happening there. Uh, Georgia is kind of falling similar to, to Alabama, anywhere from a little bit higher, actually, $2,500 to $2,800 per acre. Parcel size is a little bit lower. What you'll see uh, in these trends is as parcel sizes go lower, your average price per acre will go higher. Then that's, that's the law of averages when it comes to, to this sort of thing. So it's not, not to be surprised there. Uh, and in Georgia, 160, 180-acre range. Mississippi, Mississippi is, is a mecca for recreation. 
So more of a broader range there from 2000 to $2,600 per acre. Of course, naturally, your, your property sizes are going to be a little bit larger. So we're looking at average uh, in Mississippi from 200 to 250 acres. Uh, the Carolinas are very experiencing a lot of growth there as well. So your prices per acre are higher compared to Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, we're seeing twenty-eight to three thousand an acre. North Carolina is very comparable, up to about thirty-two hundred dollars per acre on average. Uh, parcel sizes are smaller, so North Carolina one hundred and fifteen to one hundred thirty-two acres, and South Carolina is in that that one hundred forty to one hundred sixty range as well. So it's pretty interesting when you break these numbers down to uh, see what's happening in each state. Jason, in the Carolinas, there, like you said, those the acreage sizes are are down with the uh, price per acre up. Is that indicative of, of a population size and, and population growth? Because you see some of the same trend in Florida. What drives that average acreage size down? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, population is a, is a big key in that. So you've got more folks who are more interested in, in getting into owning land, but maybe don't want or desire to have as much acreage. I mean, as you guys know, you talk about this all the time. There's a lot that goes into maintaining a track of land. So budget necessary isn't necessarily always the driving factor. It may be the fact that somebody just wants a smaller track because it's easier for them to maintain and they're willing to pay more per acre to be able to have that. So the relationship to the location of the property to to someone's primary residence is a big key. So we sell, we see a lot of, of deals happening that are, that are closer in the metropolitan areas where you've got the same smaller property sizes taking place. Another factor is the fact that there just aren't that many large tracks. And when I say large thousand plus acre tracks that are within 30 minutes of a, of a major city, anymore that aren't government owned or in some type of protection. So as a result, people were forced to buy smaller tracks. Those are the main factors. But when it's all said and done, population is is a driving factor. Which boils more into competition. The more people look and more competition you got, it drives the price per acre up. And a lot of times because the price per acre goes up, the parcel size goes down, et cetera, et cetera, just to keep it more affordable for those people looking. And it's interesting too, when you when you list a property, a lot of times we work with landowners who have a, a larger tract and they can make a lot more money during the sale if they're willing to divide that property into two smaller tracks or even three smaller tracks, just depending on how that that property lays. And we'll market that property in several different ways. We'll actually have it listed, you know, as the entire tract and then and then have the track listed in separate smaller tracts. And it's funny to me because fielding those phone calls, I get the guy who's driving by the property or looks at the, you know, looks at the big property and he says, well, how much is it? And tell him how much it is. And he says, oh gosh, you know, I just never, I've never imagined paying that much money for for timberland. But the guy who's looking at it as a recreational property or looking at it as a large home site, he's more than willing to pay that much money. And and so it's exactly what both of y'all are just saying is population and competition. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's it's um, coming back to the concept of, of making things grow. It's being able, you as a landowner, to be able to take a look at, if you own property, to look at your property and determine what are my options for this? And in, in many cases, it's it's it can be above and beyond what how you may have purchased this, where you purchased it as one track of say like a hundred acres. There may be an option to be able to generate more of a return for you because 
you have the ability to be able to, to get creative and respond to changes in your market where there may be more people looking for smaller tracks and be able to sell your property for a much higher price per acre because of that. And again, there are variables that go into that. Can't do that with every single track, but having somebody who knows what they're doing, who can give you that advice is a huge factor because that's when you go from you're making your traditional average return on investment for rural property to really making a major return on investment because then you've been able to modify and adapt to the market that's grown around you uh, and, and creating an answer for the demand that's out there. Clint, it's interesting to hear all that from Jason and, and look at things from that 50,000 foot view, uh, what's happening around the Southeast. But I mean, I mean, in my market, I know things are all over the place. I mean, I, it's attractive to try to break things down and say $2,300 to $2,800 an acre or $2,800 to $3,200 an acre. People want that because that helps them try to determine roughly what their property's worth. But man, I I mean, I sold a track last year at $6,500 an acre. What do you have to say about that, about Alabama? Yeah, it's the same thing here. I mean, like with uh, the effects that we've, uh, all that we've got going on in the Mobile, Baldwin County area, you know, our major metropolitan areas in the Huntsville area. Uh, I'm in the same boat. You know, I've got tracks that sold for a thousand an acre, 1,200, 1,500 that were rural tracks with young timber or clear cuts. Uh, and then I've got tracks of Baldwin County. You know, we're about to close one now for about 8,500 an acre. Another one that's probably going to end up pushing out about 10,000 an acre. And these tracks are big tracks, you know, 100, 200 acre tracks. We've got seven, 800 acre tracks in Baldwin County selling for uh, around four to 5,000 an acre. But when you kind of treat those as outliers or, or then you start seeing these median rates pop up, and that's really what we're talking about here. So, I mean, but everything is so location specific as we've always heard with real estate, you know, so it's really important that if, if you want us to be super precise for your area, you know, whether it's county or zip code, whatever you need, you know, just really you know, let us know and then we can get with the appropriate land professional and get something that's super detailed to your part of the woods, so to speak. Yeah. If it, ultimately, if somebody tells you what your property's worth without putting their boots on the ground there, yeah, that'll make you have a second thought. So yeah. definitely. Big red flag. To, yeah. Because like you say, it, everything's different. You just got to go out. The timber can be different and it may be that you can look at it from an aerial and you may even have a timber map that says, Hey, this is all 30 year old timber. And then you get out there and you see, you know, that it's, it's got some kind of damage to it or, or something along those lines. And, or, you know, it may be that it's way better than what you expected. And so you just got to get somebody out there, take a look at it. If y'all are interested in want to know exactly what your specific property is worth, uh, just reach out to me or Clint and uh, we'll be happy to hook you up. Uh, either with our own opinion or, or get you linked up with somebody at National Land Realty in, in your area. doesn't matter where you are. We've got agents in 33 states in the country now. So y'all just reach out to us and uh, we'll push you their way. Well, Jason, that's good to hear that uh, values look good and transaction numbers look good. And, and I'm going to look forward to staying in touch with you on this as we go forward, especially given the current environment. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays into some of our predictions that land is going to continue to be a good investment and, and be even stronger during this pandemic and, and the after effects, uh, whatever they may be. But it's also going to be interesting to look into some of the other areas of the country and see what's going on. We're talking about the Southeast today, but the next time we have you on, we're going to be talking about another region. So 
Appreciate you joining us, uh, and, and we'll look forward to having you on again soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. This, this has definitely been fun, and it's, it's fun for me to be able to, to really be able to give as much information out as possible because um, at the end of the day, what we want is for the public to be as knowledgeable as possible so they can make good, educated decisions that, that will make have, of course, major impact in their, their lives. So that's what we're all about. All right. And this week's How Much Is My Land Worth segment has been brought to you by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. Black Belt Bounty celebrates the rich traditions of hunting and fishing that are so deeply embedded in the lives of those who are fortunate to enjoy the outdoors in Alabama's Black Belt. It features award-winning writers, photography, and recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized celebrity chefs. It's a great gift idea for Father's Day, which is coming up. You guys can pick up a copy at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty. All right. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Becky Barlow, who's a professor for the Auburn School of Forestry, Wildlife, and Natural Resources. Becky, War Eagle, and welcome to Hunting Land. We're excited to talk to you this week uh, about how landowners can make more money off their land uh, by harvesting pine straw. But before we get there, tell me a little bit about your role at Auburn and how you got there. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. I I enjoy talking about pine straw harvesting because it's such a great opportunity for landowners. But yeah, so I am a professor, as you mentioned, at Auburn University in the School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences. I'm also an extension specialist um, with Alabama Cooperative Extension in Forestry. And so a lot of times people are like, so what do you, what does extension do or what do you do as an extension specialist? And I I ask them, and so I'm like, so, so were you ever in 4-H as a kid? And a lot of times they say yes. And they say, well, yeah, I did chickens or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I'm like 4-H for big people. <laughs> I'm like adult 4-H, but in forestry. So I really started out, I actually worked in forest industry for 13 years. And then we had the opportunity to come to Auburn and work in extension and teach. So I just felt like that was really what I wanted to do. So I have a, a background in, in forestry and in forest management. But then when I got to Auburn, I started doing some work in longleaf pine and management and understanding that and trying to think of opportunities for landowners to make money because y'all probably know that timber prices are not so good right now and, and haven't been so good for a while. So thinking about other opportunities for landowners to manage their land and to make a little bit of money. And pine straw just is a, seems to be a natural fit for folks who have pine stands. Yeah. And some of those complementary practices that people who, you know, a lot of times we find people that are looking just for recreational land and then they find out they can make money on it and they didn't even think about that. And then it's vice versa sometimes too. Sometimes it's all about the money and then the perk is that they get to use it recreationally. But either way, it's the same piece of ground. And if we can find complementary things that uh, can help somebody enjoy their property more, own their property and treat their property better, uh, that's that's the kind of stuff we love to cover on here. And you know, you're talking about having a background in, in forest management. That's, that's something that's unique. A lot of times with, with folks that are in academics, they, they don't necessarily have the, the commerce background where they have seen the dollars and cents side of things. And, and you have. So let's talk about that first and foremost is for a person who's got land and maybe they've got a site suitable for pine straw harvest, or maybe they need to create a site suitable for pine straw harvest with proper management in a best case scenario here in the Southeast. How much money do you think a landowner could expect to net 
set per acre, say, in a, in a given year on average uh, harvesting pine straw? So it depends, and we can talk about this a little bit more, but it, it sort of depends on the species that you have out there. So, you know, it has to be pine, and typically it's either longleaf pine is, is pretty popular, slash pine is also popular, and then to some extent loblaw pine. But on average, people can make somewhere between $50 and $150 an acre uh, per year. And so that's huge for landowners when they're thinking about being able to to make some extra income. And it's that annual income that is, is so nice because if you just manage for timber, then especially if you have like a pine plantation, you, know, you might get some revenue at about age 13 to 15 from thinning. And then you might get some revenue if you do a second thinning you know, in the early 20s of the you know, age of the stand and then a final harvest somewhere between ages 26 and 32. And so that's a long time between revenue opportunities. So if you can have some cash flow from something like pine straw, it's, it's a big incentive. Yeah, it's awesome. And we did a show a couple of a couple of weeks ago on uneven aged uh, timber management. And some of the research that's coming out on on uneven aged is that is showing that with proper management, landowners can expect close to $100 an acre per year on average, uh, with usually about a five to six year harvest rotation. And you're saying that pine straw can produce that much and even more. That's that's re- that's really strong for folks to be able to think that they can double, essentially double or more the income on their, on their timber stand. So you mentioned those different types of species. We got loblolly slash and longleaf. Which of those species are more preferred for pine straw mulch? So it's kind of interesting. We, we've, um, we've done some different studies to see what people like and what they don't like. And most of the time, people don't know what they have. Most of the time, the folks, the retailers that sell it don't know what they have. And the, and the people that buy it don't know what they're getting. But when you ask people specifically, usually longleaf pine is the most preferred. It has these really nice long needles. It has this when they, you know, when the needles are dropped from the tree. And it's kind of nice, too, because you think about pine straw is something that the trees produce naturally. There's nothing. They're going to naturally cast their needles in the fall. And so you're not having to cut any trees or, or do anything to the resources, just something produced naturally. But longleaf has these really nice long needles. They're very thick, so they last a long time. Their color stays nice a long time. And they lay really nicely. They're not, you know, they lock, interlock together when you put them out like in pine straw bales or put them out on your yard. So that's the most preferred. Slash pine's next. Because again, it has slightly, not as long as longleaf, but slightly longer needles and, and it lasts pretty well. And then loblaw pine is usually the last. Um, the color doesn't hold as often, as long often, and um, the needles just aren't as long. So, and then, so they just don't last as long in the landscape. That's what the consumer wants. The consumer wants that, you know, say longleaf slash and loblaw in that order. Is that also the most profitable for the landowner? Is that order the same? Yes, that's definitely the most profitable because if you look at, you know, you go to your building supply store or wherever retailer to try and buy pine straw, that's longleaf pine straw is definitely the most expensive when you're trying to look at buying it. Um, And it is what 
So, and it is the more preferred. And so then the landowner then gets paid more for it. So we, we talked about which pines are preferred by the consumer. And we talked about which pines uh, are really going to net the most to the landowner. But when it comes to uh, that person's property, can this be done on, on any stand of pine trees they have? Or is there a, a certain type of stand that's say more suitable because of topography? Or you mentioned earlier that pine plantation may be better suited for, for pine straw harvest. But if somebody is practicing, say, uneven aged management, they don't have those nice, neat rows, can it still be done? Yes. Yeah, I think it's cool that y'all are looking into things like uneven age management, because that's something that, again, has been dismissed for a long time, I think, by landowners. And there's definitely opportunities to rake pine straw. And that's originally what we had that natural type of form was uneven age management. And folks have been raking pine straw since you know the 20s and 30s. And this it's kind of cool to be able to to, to think about that, that is, this has been a market. There's been a market for pine straw for, for that long. But when you start to think about what trees are best and you know if your land is suitable for pine straw raking, it's, you need to think about a couple of things. You need to think about you know, where is your property located? Like physically located? Is it in, you know, the lower south, the deep south? Is it more in the north? Um, you got to think about, you know, where it's located. Because like slash pine, for example. Slash pine, you think about something called the silvics of the species. So silvics is how a tree grows. It's kind of its natural needs and life cycle of a tree species. And so Slash pine, for example, naturally occurred and does best within about 50 miles of the Gulf Coast. So most people don't realize that. I've had landowners call me all the time. They're like, I have these slash pines and they're really looking bad and they're dying. I'm like, where are you located? And they say, Huntsville. And I'm like, there's a problem. (laughs) And, And slash pine was planted everywhere in the 70s. It was one of the first pine plantation tree species. Um, that people start looking at. But so if you live down toward the coast, then slash pine could be a good tree species for you to grow. If you have more of an upland site or a sandy site, then longleaf pine might be better. Longleaf pine is actually really widely distributed across the Southeast and it grows really well on almost all soil types other than prairie type soils or saturated wet soils. So longleaf pine makes for a good option in most parts of the the lower south. Loblaw pine, on the other hand, is better suited to wet areas. So you know what the word loblolly means? No, yeah, I can't wait. So loblolly means a mud, it's old timey word for a mud hole. My grandma used to tell me, Becky, when I was little, she'd be like, don't go out there and play in that loblolly and get your clothes muddy, which meant, you know, stay out of the mud holes. So that tells you that loblaw pines are best suited to wet areas, saturated soils, wet areas. So if you think about how they grow, they do much better in creek margins, lower, wetter areas. So you need to think about that as a landowner. It's like, what, where physically is your land located? Where, what kind of topography, like you were saying, if you have really steep topography, then probably not as good for raking pine straw because you don't want to have erosion issues or trying to run equipment on it. So, you know, those are definitely things to think about. But if you have an uneven age stand, you know, pine plantations are easy when you're raking pine straw because you can run equipment between those rows. 
and, and are right between the rows and it's, it's very straightforward. Uneven age stands, if you're doing a hand raking operation, they work just fine. You know, maybe not a mechanized operation, but that might be something that people are more interested anyway if they're looking at trying to, like you were talking about, have lots of different objectives. If maybe wildlife is an objective, maybe you don't want it so clean in the understory as you get with a mechanical operation. You'd rather have a hand raking, which puts a little bit of a lighter touch on the land. So that that might be a better option for you anyway. Back to the money a little bit. If you're a landowner who's not going to do the work yourself and you're going to bring in a, a, a commercial pine straw uh, operation to harvest for you, are there commercial operations that do it by hand and and mechanized as well? So, I mean, can you is that out there in the marketplace where somebody can say, look, I, I only want it done by hand on my property or my property is only set up for it to be done by hand? Yes. And it's that's kind of the challenge, I think, with landowners or the challenge that we've seen is finding people to rake the pine straw. A lot of times there are bigger operations that are more mechanized and more set up for that mechanical raking. But they're also, I think as a landowner, you just kind of need to do your homework and find the people who kind of sometimes it's slightly smaller operations, but they can still do the hand raking as well. And it's kind of like a rental property too. You know, if, if you've got a residential rental property, if you hire out the property management, you know, that's a totally hands-off passive investment for you, but you still always have the option to go in there and get your hands dirty. Do you see that if you want to go fix the toilet, you can, uh, but do you see some landowners that do this work themselves where they get out and actually bail this pine straw themselves? Yes, actually it's, it's kind of fun because like you said, there's people who are just like, maybe they don't live near the property. And that's what we find a lot of times people that maybe live outside of the County in which their property is located they're much more likely to take this kind of hands-off approach just because it's hard. You know, we all have life that happens. And so it's hard to get out there to do the work. But if you live on your place or you live pretty close or you just have this you know, interest in being more hands-on, I have heard of landowners who had property that was, again, they lived on their, their horse land and they'd go out after work and rake pine straw and bale pine straw and make money that way. And they were able to sell it. And this person that I think about lived in the Carolinas, but where they lived was kind of that first place that folks got to at the time coming down from, you know, further North where they don't have pine straw raking. And so they, this person just happened to be really well situated that he had a good buyer and he could just rake it himself and sell it. So the market is, is a big factor too, as far as where you are and being able to to access access to markets is important. Becky, when it comes to stand setups, we've talked about the natural growth there. If you're back to a normal plantation setting, I mean, what kind of spacing do you typically need to run a mechanized operation in? That's a good question because that's something a lot of times people don't think about. And it's something to think about too, if you're establishing a new pine plantation and you think that, okay, I do want to do pine straw raking, you, know, you might want to consider this early on. And it really comes down to the equipment you're running. Um, a lot of times, if you have enough space, you know, like 12-foot rows are usually pretty good, 10 to 12-foot rows. It just sort of depends on if you're running what your operator's running. If they have like a small tractor, and a lot of times the pine straw baler, I don't know if y'all have done any looking to see what the pine straw balers look like, but they're sort of like a modified small hay baler. Sometimes it's, it depends too if you're doing like square bales or round bales. Most of the time now, a lot of times they're doing like the more mechanized is with round bales. 
Um, so they have these little modified bowls that they pull behind so they'll like rake it and then they'll come along to the middle and then they'll bale it. And sometimes you have you have hand rakers that actually rake the straw to the middle of the, the alleys between the trees. And so that's also kind of good too because you're not there's still material and vegetation that can be left in within the tree rows. So again, it doesn't impact your land as much. You know, what age is the earliest a landowner could expect to be able to harvest pine straw? Usually people start raking. Again, it kind of depends on the species. Um, longleaf is a little slower growing early on. So you don't necessarily get to rake quite as early, but you can make more money over time probably. Mobline slash, you can typically rake probably starting somewhere around 10, maybe a couple of years later for longleaf. Just sort of depends on how well your trees are growing early on. But most of the time, once they get up, 10, 15 feet. And you can just kind of gauge on how much pine straw is falling. And as you know your trees age, you're going to get more and more pine straw production. And you know, you may decide, well, I need to go in and do a thinning. And so during that time, you might your pine straw production might fall off a little bit, but you're also opening up those rows so that you can get the equipment in long term. And I assume, I mean, we're talking about these stand characteristics. The Your net income is typically going to be higher on the ones that are more set up for mechanized operations as opposed to hand raking. Yeah, that I'm not, honestly, I'm not really sure as far as what what the landowner will get, how that would impact what the landowner gets. I mean, like Joe was saying, if you hand rake it yourself, then you're going to definitely be able to to get more of the profit that way. And most of the time, the mechanized operations are larger operations, so they do have more overhead when it comes to that part of it too. And so it's you know the the pine straw industry is is kind of interesting, and for the most part, it's a pretty loose association where you have you know you have the the landowner, and then you usually have a you know a raker or a dealer that works with that landowner, and then you have people who actually do the, the labor, the work that work for that person. So you have a lot of, there's a lot of layers between the landowner and when you actually see it end up at a retail establishment. And then you still got to have a market to buy it at the end of the day. Right. That's a big thing is having that market. And I think that, you know, with me being in Alabama, I think there's a good market because to me, Alabama sort of missed the boat. On the pine straw raking business, when you think about states like Georgia and Florida, where there's, it's the industry's way more established than it is in in Alabama and Mississippi. So I think that there's definitely opportunities out there. And the, again, the bigger part is when you need to have landowners that have got the land in shape to be able to be raked, and then also finding people to rake it. Clint, you were telling me that you guys actually uh, targeted an acquisition over in. Mississippi for a commercial pine straw operation where they were buying the land themselves and were able to make money actually harvesting in Mississippi and hauling it to Georgia. Is that right? Yep. Taking it back to Atlanta. Now we've done the same, set up the same platform in our TAP program, which we've talked about for North Georgia. But yeah, but this specific client was buying in central Mississippi, hauling through Alabama back to Atlanta. That doesn't surprise me. I have gone, you know, been on the interstate going like from Auburn, like toward Huntsville. And I'm passed by semi-truck loads of pine straw, like from Florida, that's like going up the interstate. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, why isn't this pine straw coming from Alabama? But, you know, you don't know where it's going, but it never fails semi-truck loads of pine straw. And Atlanta's just such a huge market 
that that's not surprising. Becky, if a landowner is, you know, he's he's listening to this and and he's thinking, well, maybe this will work on my place. I mean, how can he assess that market? I mean, if it's if it's profitable for a company to haul it from Mississippi to Atlanta, I would have to think that just about anywhere in Alabama, there's probably a market for it. But is there a metric, is some something someone can use to determine if their pine straw is going to be marketable in their area? I think for the most part, it is going to be marketable because one of the things we found is when We've done some surveys of retail establishments and asked them what matters to you about pine straw. And one of the questions we asked them is where it comes from. And pretty much they don't care where it comes from. They just care that it comes <laughs> and, right. and that, you know, it's good quality and it looks good. That's all they care about. So I think that, again, I think the key for landowners is being able to find somebody to make it for you. And there are people out there, but a lot of times you wouldn't have to to do a little digging to, to find somebody to do it for you. And another big thing for landowners, which they don't realize a lot of times, is getting their property in shape to be raked. Um, yeah. So what has to be done? I mean, what, what kind of site prep? If I'm looking at a pine plantation that's never been raked or une- uneven aged or a plantation, whatever it may be, what's got to be done before somebody can get in there? And do they have to run a fire through it if the understory is out of control? I mean, what, what really has got to be done? Yeah, so it kind of depends on how long it's been since anything's happened in the understory. If it's a pine plantation, you know, that's that maybe the, if the canopy's closed on it, you know, if it's like a 15-year-old pine plantation. Or, so then when the canopy's closed, then there's going to be probably not as much growing in the understory. But sometimes landowners maybe have a, a pine stand and they haven't done anything to it maybe since it was planted. And we've all been out there in those jungle forests that look like they've just got nothing but sweet gum and green briar and blackberries. And it's just, you can't see you know, 10 feet in front of you. you know, and then, so we have landowners a lot of times like, oh, I want to rate my pine stand for pine straw. And you go out there and you're like, got some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it depends on how bad it is. If it's like, it's a thicket, then you're probably going to have to have something like an understory mulching operation come out there and get a lot of that bigger vegetation down. Uh, and then you can maintain it with herbicides and fire. If you have, that's one reason I think that longleaf works so well is because longleaf is a fire adapted species and it needs fire as part of its life cycle. So if you're burning on a regular basis from the time the stand's really small for longleaf, then you have those natural grassy understories, more open understories, and so you can rake really easily. Loblight pine's not fire tolerant at all when it's little, so you have to think about other things like herbicides from early on. Or possibly if you have a bush hog, you know, bush hog between the rows, or just to kind of keep some of that vegetation down. Slash pine's a little bit more fire tolerant as it gets a little bit older, um, but again, you're going to have to do some things like herbiciding and things like that to to get that woody, the woody material like sweet gum, and green briar, and blackberries. You have to get that down and, and taken care of. And also invasive species. Don't want to have any things like climbing fern. I've had pine straw I've opened up before and it's got climbing fern all in it. And I'm just like, oh, no, this is not, not a that good is thing. A, uh... The primary source of climbing fern, if you ask anybody in our around us in our industries, they always blame pine straw and florist that came with it uh, either by accident or as decor, and then it just got tossed out and spread. Yeah, it's something that I really stress to landowners that if you have invasive species on your property and you want to rake pine straw, 
you need to get those taken care of first because you don't want to add to the problem. And you don't want to be on somebody that's raking in their equipment and then they move it to the next location. You know, a raker really needs to be aware of that as well. Yeah. I ran across a Kogan grass patch and right outside Selma, Alabama this week and had to explain to him what it was because he's got a friend that comes up from Mobile and Baldwin County to hunt. And, you know, we pull into this beautiful pasture and I just see this really circular patch of white Oh, no. out there and i said <laughs> i said you need to get him to go up here to spray this very quickly or it's going to spread so but it did have a buck bedded down in it which was kind of unique i never never seen a, a buck pop out of kogan grass before so yeah it's kinda, i wouldn't have thought they would have done that but you would think it'd be a little painful but apparently not for that one <laughs> um, well you know becky you mentioned uh you mentioned herbicide and and controlling that understory and and you talked about prescribed burning and we've talked uh, at length on here about the benefits of prescribed fire with herbicide though not only you're gonna you're gonna kill that understory that uh, is gonna prohibit you from being able to harvest uh, pine straw effectively but you're also gonna be killing some natural browse for for wildlife and is a is a stand that is a productive pine straw stand. Uh, mutually exclusive to a stand that has good wildlife habitat? I don't think so. It's kind of interesting because a lot of times, again, people think about those very clean, nothing but dirt and pine straw in the understory. And I think that landowners, if they're thoughtful about how they do it, and they have that objective of we want to have good wildlife habitat and we want to be able to rake pine straw, then I think you need to adjust your perspective as far as the pine straw rake goes. Then you might want to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to rake it every year. Maybe I'm going to rake every other year or I'm going to rake for three years and then let it rest, you know, so that you can then have some of that vegetation to come back. And there are some herbicides. Um, I've seen some, and really the names are escaping me right now, but where you can actually start to promote grasses and things with some of the herbicides you use. And maybe you use herbicide this early on so that you kind of knock things back and then you maintain your fire. So that you can get some of those, maybe stuff that was hanging out in the seed bank, you give it an opportunity to come off. So I, I think that, you, again, you just kind of have to think about it. And so a lot of times people think about game species, um, but also non-game species can be impacted by pine straw raking. But maybe not as much as people might think. I had some colleagues that were herpetologists. They... Um, studied things like snakes and, and ground blizzards, and, and they were really concerned about pine straw raking and impact. And so one of the things, but they had this real misconception about when pine straw raking happens, because they were saying, well, you know, in the summers when they're out there and then you've got you know, these, the habitat for these, these ground dwelling herps and you're messing up their habitat. And I was like, you have to think about when pine straw raking actually happens. And if you think about, again, kind of the life cycle of a tree, it's in the fall, like October, November, and sometimes into December, depending on where you are, is when pine straw naturally falls. The needles are cast from the tree. Pine straw raking typically happens pretty soon after that because you want to get the cleanest, nicest straw. So it usually happens December, January, maybe February. So thinking about that and talking with you know my friends that are herpetologists, they're like, oh, there's the herps aren't out during December, January, February because it's cold. I'm like, yes. So you're 
you do need to think about cover and things, but in the Southeast, things grow very, very quickly, as we all know. And so, you know, something that seems pretty bare in the wintertime, come March or April, you can have a lot of vegetation in the understory that's come back from sprouting or seeds or whatever. So that it did make them feel a little better once we started kind of talking about that process and they started seeing how it worked. They realized that there probably really wasn't as much of an impact as they thought there might be. Yeah. And like you're saying, it's important just to take a look at the overall big picture. It's like one of the first shows that, that Clint and I did together was was on Prescribed Fire. And one of the things we learned from that show is that like with quail, for example, I just tend to think of if something's good, more is better. And, and so with prescribed fire, you know, I'm thinking, well, if I got 200 acres, let's burn the whole 200 acres. Why not? But what, what we found out in that show is that, say, for quail, uh, it's better to burn in, in five acre blocks and, and not burn any more than a contiguous five acres to promote be- the best habitat for them. And and so what what a lot of the uh, land managers that are doing prescribed fire on quail properties are doing is segmenting those properties into five acre blocks and trying to only burn adjacent blocks, you know, in contrasting years and, and not burn any more than a five acre, you know, of contiguous timber. And so it sounds like it's, it's much the same with pine straw production of saying, you know, maybe we need to look at it that way. And we said, we're going to harvest from this area this year. We're going to harvest from, you know, another area the next year. And, it, and it's all about trying to balance the, the wildlife habitat with, with the income hopes and the income projections. But is there anything that a landowner can do if he's got a site that's it's in good shape? You know, it, it's, it's the understories in, is uh, managed. It's open enough where he can get equipment in or go in and do a hand raking. Can he do anything like fertilizing those trees to help him produce more pine straw? And is there a return on investment for in that fertilizer? Right. One thing I was actually talking to some folks just this week about this. If you have longleaf pine, you don't want to fertilize it. Longleaf does not do well with fertilization. It tends to develop pitch canker a lot of times, or it starts to grow really quickly and too fast. And then starts, sometimes it'll grow so fast that they'll actually start to lay over on the ground. I mean, it's just, so fertilizing and longleaf, you really don't need to do it, even if you're raking pine straw. And and most of the time in studies that I've seen is that if you're raking pine straw, you're really not losing much of anything when it comes to nutrients. Because once the needles are cast, there's carbon there, but they pretty much, you know, they've done what they're going to do. And so there's not a lot there from a nutrient standpoint. The bigger piece of it sometimes is thinking about soil moisture and erosion. Um, So those are things more you kind of need to think about than than nutrients. One thing with loblaw pine, loblaw pine is a water and nutrient hog. It needs, like I said, it comes from these or does better in these lower wet areas. We've naturally evolved in these lower wet areas. So fertilization of loblaw can help. I mean, in industrial situations, they fertilize their pine plantations all the time to help with growth. So your fertilization of a loblaw pine stand, if that's something you want to do, but I don't think it's necessary at all because it's a big expense and it's not, not really going to pay off for you in the long run. Um, One thing I have a landowner that I've worked with who has an agroforestry uh, silvopasture 
setup where he has lonely pine in the overstory and then he grazed cows underneath his longly pine and um his cows you know what cows do and they kind of provided some natural fertilizer but not so much as you would get you know with a um, with a fertilization treatment so he and he would graze the cows through the summer he pulled them off in the late summer in time for the needles to fall give the cow pies a chance to break up and then he'd rake his pine straw in the winter time he'd even thought about getting little mobile chicken tractors and putting the chickens out there so the chickens could provide some nutrients to the trees also and then also help break up the cow pies on underneath. So he really had this kind of cool system that he was working on to to you know really manage for many things on his an individual acre. Complimentary practices and I mean so he's making he's making a little money on his on his cattle. He's making some money on on growing. Probably it's probably some really fine timber. I would imagine if it's uh, if it's nice evenly spaced timber like that. And how much was he able to produce uh, in you know for, from pine straw uh, in an operation like so, that? He was funny because I, I worked with him over over many years. And the first time I met with him, I think his trees were probably in the the thirteen ish age, and he was getting um, hundred bales to the acre at that point in time. And then, you know, I talked to him a few years later and he was getting over 150 bales to the acre. And if you think about, you know, if somebody were to even get a dollar an acre for a bale, you know, that's a hundred to $150 an acre that he was getting. And he told me, and he's like other landowners I know that have, have pine straw. He's like, I'm just growing pine straw. He said, that's for me. He he had done the, you know, done the math on the economics and he said, this is, this is what I want to do. And so, and that's, that's kind of the cool thing I think for landowners to think about is you need to think about your objectives and what's going to complement your objectives and how can you really holistically manage, like you were talking about, Joe, how can you manage your property for that? And a lot of times landowners are kind of poo-pooed by professionals is like with things like pine straw or agroforestry, civil pasture. And this person I'm talking about he wanted to do pine straw. He wanted to do silver pasture. And the forester he was working with said, you don't want to do that. That's not. And he's like, but I do want to do that. And he's like, and the forester was like, nah, you, you really, you don't want to do that. And, and the guy's like, yes, I do. So I need to find somebody who's going to help me. And you're obviously not it. So <laughs> he, you know, he did his own homework and he found, you know, professionals, land management professionals that were willing to help him. And I think, from a land management professional side, it really is in your best interest to to think about other options for landowners so that you can help them. I mean, I know, like I said, I went to school as a forester and you're not some, I think it's better now than when I was in school, but a lot of times you're not taught these alternative income opportunities. So maybe, you know, where we go to school as land managers or as foresters really kind of color what we think we know about forestry and land management so if you didn't learn about it in school then it may not be on your radar and then when you have a landowner who wants to do something that's kind of out of the box or unusual it it may be in some people's cases it's not that they don't want to do it but they don't know how to do it or they don't you know they don't feel sure about it you know so I think as a land manager it's in your best interest to be open to other ideas and to learn. It's ultimately that property belongs to the landowner and it's up to them to do what they want to 
you know, yeah. it's, it's their land and it's our job to help them reach their goals. Well, speaking of achieving landowner goals and your experience with the extension, are, can you utilize some of the cost share opportunities there are out there for, for managing understory, you know, to the benefit of pine straw production? Is that okay? Yeah. So it's, that's one of the things that it can be a little tricky depending on what program you're signed up for, because some programs, they don't want you doing anything with the understory and that would include pine straw. And so some people are not able to, to do pine straw raking because it's counter to what their objectives are in these cost share programs. But one of the things I think about pine straw, and I've talked to some people at the NRCS and, and other professionals that kind of feel the same way I do, is that pine straw raking or other agroforestry practices can be a great opportunity for people when they rotate out of a cost share program. You know, maybe they're getting help in these cost share programs or getting, you know, assistance. And then when they rotate out, you've maybe got a a pine stand that's ready to roll right into pine straw raking or some other agroforestry type technique. You could use it to in the in the interim to help whip it into shape without having to come out of pocket for all of those activities and and then everybody's goals achieved from the uh, NRCSs to to the landowners. Exactly. Well, when it comes to doing these types of operations on your property, if you're not going to harvest the pine straw yourself, you're going to have to find a commercial operator who can come on and either hand rake or uh, you know, rake with uh, a baler, uh, you know, and a tractor and, and do that kind of thing. But I would imagine that's that's a, a task in and of itself uh, to find the right the right type of commercial operation and, and then enter into a contract with them to come onto your property and harvest the pine straw. So what what kind of things do landowners need to ask a commercial harvester think about when they're interviewing a commercial harvester to get their pine straw? Yeah, so that's a really good question because a lot of times people don't think about that. And you mentioned a contract and a contract is not optional. And so often I think landowners do things on handshake and sometimes they come out on the short end of the deal. So a contract is very important in that you have somebody, your own lawyer or look over that contract to make sure that you understand what's going into that. I think that's huge. Um, you want to understand how they're going to rake it. You want to understand, are they going to machine bale it? Are they going to hand rake it and machine bale it? Are they machine raking and baling? Is it all hand? You know, what? How are they doing it? You need to also understand when are they planning to come in and rake it so that you can, one, if you have cows or whatever that you need to get off or if you've got folks hunting, you need to be aware that, you know, that could possibly go on during that time frame. Is that going to be a conflict with the folks that you got out there hunting? You also need to think about what you're going to get paid. And, you know, that's, I have another story of a landowner who they, this was a while back, but they were kind of negotiating the price and with what they were going to get paid. And the harvester offered them 50 cents a bale. And the landowner said, no, no, that's not enough. I'm not going to take 50 cents a bale. And so then they offered them 75 cents a bale. And the landowner was like, yeah, you know, that seems like a pretty fair price. I'll, I'll, I'll go with 75 cents a bale. They found out that they were selling the 
person raking it was selling those pine straw bales for over $7 a bale. And that person was like, Becky, I should have asked for more money. <laughs> you know, and so it's it's understanding your your market and what you can get. And and two, this person was like, he said, you know, 75 cents a bale. And the contractor jumped on it and was like, yes, okay, that's great. And you know, didn't and he was like, he thought about it at the time that the landowner was like, mm, yeah, I probably should have asked for more money. He's like, they took that really way too quickly. You know, doing your homework a little bit about what you're going to get paid. And also another thing to think about is what is that contractor going to offer you? So there are some contractors that are willing to do a little work up front if your property's not perfectly in shape like they want it. They might do some work up front either with sort of understory mulching or herbicide work or fire to kind of help get it in shape. And then with the understanding that the first year or two, they might rake it, but you don't get anything for the raking, but they're doing the service for you. And then in maybe it's a five-year contract. That's another thing. Know how long your contract's going to be for and or agreements. And then you say, okay, well then in years three, four, and five, then you're going to get paid some certain amount for the pine straw rate. So, you know, there's lots of different ways it can be structured. And I think the landowner should definitely think creatively and work with your contractor and find a contractor that's going to work with you to find that best mix for both. Of you. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times we, we get focused on money coming in and not thinking about money going out and using something like a pine straw harvest to improve your property. Not only does it prepare it for future harvests, but it also can make it more attractive if you're planning on selling that property and you don't have to come out of, out of pocket to have those things done. It's just like a cost share program uh, with the NRCS. And, and I've got a, a, a landowner, you know, in the Mississippi Delta who they have a negotiated a lower per acre uh, lease rate with their farmer, but that farmer also is progressively leveling their fields and putting a pres- pres- precision grade level on their fields, and he's making improvements. Uh, he even helps them uh, do some things around their duck blinds that they have. You know, I mean, so he's their eyes and ears uh, when they can't be there, and they were able to get that done with negotiations. W- one of the things I had a question about for you on the actual harvest is. What's in place and what should the landowner do to actually monitor uh, the amount of bales that are harvested? So if somebody says they're going to pay you a dollar per bale, how do you know that they're telling you the truth? Do you have to be there when they're doing it? Yeah, that's one of those things. And, and you can either be pay, paid by the bale or by the acre. Sometimes It depends on, again, that's another way the contract can possibly be structured. You, know, you may have some flat rate per acre or you may be paid by the bale. And to me, being paid by the bale is better. Because then, like you're saying, it's more of a an account of what was on your land. There's no way, I don't think, that you can know exactly how many bales are taken off of your property. But it's always good to be present. Regardless if it's pine straw raking, if it's tree planting, whatever, you need to show up out there when your contractors are out there working. You need to kind of show up at unexpected times. You know, Don't always come at 3.30 on a Tuesday. You know, you need to... Come at unexpected times. And so they need to know that you're out there and you're watching and you're checking. And you always, of course, need to be safe. You need to always stay out of the way of equipment, make eye contact with any operators that are out there so they know you're out there. You know, maybe if there's a, a contractor or a crew foreman that's there, 
you know, contact, make sure they see you and know you're there. But for sure, check I was thinking it. a good method might be to just like sit out there with your deer rifle, you know, and uh, just keep an eye on it that way. That that ought to keep them honest. But <laughs> but Becky, uh, you know, this has been a, an awesome discussion, and it's something. Anytime we can talk about ways for for landowners to make more money off their property, enjoy their property more improve their property for the future generations, for the wildlife that inhabits it, uh, is something that, that we want to bring to light. And you've done an excellent job of that today. There's even more questions that we could go into. And I know you've covered this at length. So if folks after this podcast, they want to listen in uh, and read some more information, uh, some of the research that's going on with pine straw and the markets for it and and really any other questions they may have. Do you have some additional resources you could point them to, maybe online? Yeah, there's a few different places. So um, the Alabama Cooperative Extension System, and the website is aces, A-C-E-S um, You can look up, there's lots of forestry and wildlife information out there in general, but you can definitely find some information on pine straw raking there. There's also the National Agroforestry Center, and that's nac.org. They have lots of information on what they call forest farming, of which pine straw raking is a part. But they also have information on some of the other things we mentioned, like silvopasture and other agroforestry practices, windbreaks, streamside management zones, and those types. Then there's also um, a website called eExtension. And what it has on there has these different um, areas of practice, and they have a forest farming area of practice. And there's a lot of information out there on pine straw. And we actually have some videos out there that we have developed um, in conjunction with the extension on pine straw raking. We talk about the different types of trees, like we talked about longleaf slash and loblolly, kind of the differences there. Talks about how to rake pine straw. We have a little demo and things like that. So definitely options. Well, Becky, it's been a pleasure having you on today. And uh, we appreciate you joining us. And uh, we're going to look forward to having you on again sometime soon. I know you got... I know you got a lot more knowledge and we're going to, we're going to have you back. Wish you, uh, wish you luck in, in 2020 and uh, stay safe this year. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. You too. It's been fun. Well, Clint, what do you think, man? You going to get out there and start raking some pine straw? Not quite yet, but I definitely <laughs> see some opportunities for, uh, for diversity here. Make some money where I, you know, wasn't making it before on my plantations. You know, I see a lot of opportunity here. Yeah. And I mean, what she was saying, what a uh, pine straw production or pine straw harvest could start at around maybe year six to 10. And that what she said. Um, well, it depends on the species, but I think she said about 12. Was it on the long leaf? Okay. So, I mean, but that kind of would coincide with a first, I mean, wouldn't have to wait too much longer for a first thinning and go from there. Yeah. I mean, I, in my mind, I think that's a good strategy. If it, you know, that's my layman's opinion is that you could plant the way you conventionally would wait until your first thinning, and then after your first thinning, move into a, a pine straw mindset or, or a combination mindset is what I was thinking, where you basically got an overstory production of timber and a timber investment, and then an understory production uh, focused on pine straw. And that way you get cash flows on, on both sides. I just like the fact that there's so many things you can do with land. And, you know, I love the story she told about the guy who's running cattle under his trees you know, he's growing timber while he's growing cattle, while he's growing pine straw. And 
Heck, he's even going to get chickens out there pretty soon. I mean, it, it's just you can't do that with other investments the way you can with land. It's There's so many different ways to go, and there's always something to learn more about. And I think that's, there's an intangible return on investment with land, too, is that, you know, maybe you're just a geek like me and you like learning about this kind of stuff. And there's no way to quantify the return you get from being on your property and seeing it produce something from the effort you put into it. And that's it, worth something to me. Oh, yeah. Well, Clint, speaking of uh, you know owning your own land, you've been you've been selling this week. What's uh, what's going on with you guys? I, for for me, it's been good. I'm still seeing plenty of interest in land. I, I really, it's been interesting to note that I'm getting a lot, a lot more interest from folks coming out of urban areas, and they're looking for anywhere from 20 acres on up from there, and they've got this bug in their ear to own their own property and, and get away from these urban cores and, and start to uh, get away from this coronavirus uh, pandemic type uh, mentality. They're, they're seeing the benefits of, of owning land. Are you getting a lot of those kind of calls? I am. I mean, it, we're as, as busy as I've ever been. And I, I said that before the uh, coronavirus set in and I didn't think it could get busier, but it has. And, you know, I think a lot of it's driven by these low interest rates. I've, I've got a buyer now. Uh, we did a one-time show and sale on a property, 400 plus acres. It's selling for 1.6 million, just under, and and he just locked in a 3.4 percent loan on it for 20 years, uh, which is just unheard of in land. You know that was with Alabama Ag Credit, and that's before their patronage rate kicks in. So I mean, Holy he's going to be moly. he's going to be sitting pretty sweet between deals like that. That's driving a lot of a lot of buyer demand, and a lot of people just are, are getting out of more volatile investments and and uh, moving over to something more stable and, and things they can use, like you mentioned. And, you know, we've had four new team members come on across central Mississippi and, and Black Belt of Alabama and Northwest Alabama. And, you know, everybody's just hitting the ground running and, you know, just wide open. So it's it's good to see. 3.4% a patronage rate of, a, of roughly a percent, which means effective borrowing at around 2.4, 2.5% on a piece of land and inflation is what 2.5 percent or so at least every day of the week so you're almost in a free money situation right now with interest rates where they are i've got a friend that just refinanced did a cash out refinance on his home at 2.8 percent so you start looking at things like that and i and i'm debt averse man i don't like debt I, i'm i'm a big believer in I mean, if you can do it, no debt at all, but definitely, you know, only good leverage. But man, that's that's historic. I mean, you, you just think you can go out and essentially buy land right now with some purely somebody else's money. Yeah. I mean, I'll put it this way. I'm, I I didn't have any debt on any land I own, uh, but I've already got them working on an application for me because I'm going to take advantage of that while I can. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's definitely what's driving part of it. And Amongst other things, but like you, we we got to get off this podcast, man. I got stuff I got to go do. It's it's uh, it's busy right now. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like us to email you this podcast each week, just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land, and you can join our weekly email list there. Y'all stay safe. We'll talk to you again soon.
This week's Hunland podcast has been brought to you by Bay County Armory. Are you looking for a purpose-built AR-10 or AR-15? If you are, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. Built for the task you're going to tackle, whether it's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Bay County Armory, purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s will guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solution. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also, Alabama Ag Credit, buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also brought to us by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. It celebrates the traditions of hunting and fishing so deeply embedded in the folks who get to call the Alabama Black Belt home and the folks who enjoy. It's got unbelievable writing from award-winning writers, excellent photography, and some really awesome recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized celebrity chefs. If you want to pick up a copy, just go over to the Alabama Black Belt Adventures website at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty.